passive investor, you know, you may not want to, or especially if you're just getting started, it might be a little bit daunting to go buy a whole house to yourself. Like, you know, you put 20% down payment, you got to get a loan, you got to qualify for a loan, or certainly if you've never done it before to go buy a 50 unit apartment building seems crazy. But if you've got 25,000 or 50,000 or some small, smaller amount of money, you can then invest or partner with a syndicate, a syndicator who's now, as I said before, collecting everybody's money, pulling them together. And so your 25 goes in with everybody else's and now suddenly you've got 200,000 or 500,000 or a million or whatever, and you can go do the deal. So it's a great way for, for investors passively to sort of get involved. And when they've got a little bit of money to invest, instead of putting it in the stock market, instead of putting somewhere else, they can put it into one of these deals, one of these syndications. Welcome to Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here's your host, Annette Talee. Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Talee, and my guest today is Mauricio Rold. Welcome, Mauricio. Thanks, Annette. Thanks for having me. Looking uh, forward to the conversation. I am super, super excited to have you. I mean, I've been watching you, like I said, for a while on different conferences, and I love how you present, uh, you know, syndication. And sometimes it's really hard to, you know, understand legal terms. And, you know, you have a way to explain it very easily. So I'm super excited uh, to have you. But in the meantime, tell me, how did you get into real estate? You know, I got into, I've always been interested in real estate, you know, through college. And I actually, back in the day, and I'm probably going to date me a little bit, but I used to watch all those late night infomercials with Carlton Sheets and um, and Tommy Wu. And if you remember the, you know, you're a loser uh, infomercial. So I always wanted to do that. And uh, as fate would have it, I really got into it when, um, it's, it's actually a kind of an interesting story. I was flying back actually from, from Florida. I was in Miami for a birthday party. And we were just talking before we got on the air here that we both, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad is a big influence in our lives. And that was the, the day that I actually found Rich Dad Poor Dad. It was a flight back from Miami back to LA. And I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. And that actually, obviously that blew me away. If you've, ne if you've never heard of the book or never read it, I highly, highly recommend looking. It's called Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Blew my mind away. And I literally, the, the next week or two weeks after that trip and I read the book, I heard a, a, an ad what we call a drop-in for the real estate guys. And it was Robert Kiyosaki just saying, look, if you're interested in, in learning about real estate, that real estate, check out the real estate guys. And that's what got me hooked. So if I hadn't picked up that book, that, that radio drop-in would have meant anything. And I ended up going to this event that was put on by Robert and Russ with the real estate guys. And that kind of started my journey in investing in real estate. And that was, that was 15, 16 years ago. Wow. And were you working on syndications at the time or like this book led you to that? Yeah, so I was an attorney here in Southern California. I was working at a, at a large firm, and I was I was doing securities work, but not syndications. I was representing, you know, the J.P. Morgans, the Merrill Lynches, the Prudentials of the world, uh, Goldman Sachs, and 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 just basically def I was a defense attorney. So I was litigation. So I was representing them when they got sued. So I would file responses. I'd go to trial. We'd do depositions, you know, appellate work, all that arbitrations, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I wasn't doing syndications per se. It wasn't until I left the firm after about six or seven years and joined, I actually went to work in-house for the real estate guys. I was their general counsel. And at the time they were doing a ton, a ton of syndications. And so I started with sort of being the, the general counsel, being the point person with the securities attorney that we had at the time. And then over time, I just you know got into it more and more and more and became an expert myself. And so when I left the in-house job with them and started my own firm, 
it was just a natural progression for me to continue doing syndication. So, so I've been doing syndication now for 16 years, specifically in securities work for 21 years. Awesome. Amazing. All right. So let me tell you a little bit about Mauricio. He's known as one of the few lawyers that actually speak English. <laughs> Mauricio helps real estate syndicators stay out of jail by ensuring compliance with federal and state security laws. With more than 20 years of securities experience, Mauricio is the premier syndication attorney in the country, focusing exclusively on syndications for real estate investors. Mauricio has been recognized as one of the top California attorneys under 40 by Super Lawyers Magazine. As an educator at heart, Mauricio regularly travels around the country speaking to real estate investors on how to, the legal piece fits into the overall syndication puzzle. Awesome. I am, I am super excited because, you know, a lot of my uh, friends are approaching me and they want to invest and they have so many questions. And I, I'm always pointing them to a couple of the episodes that we talk about syndications. Uh, but I wanted to do a show about, you know, mainly what is syndication and as a passive investor, what to look for. And so, you know, I'm yeah. super excited to have you. So let's start. Real Estate Deal Closers Special Edition. Can you explain in plain words, what's a syndication? Let's do it in plain English. A syndication is simply the pooling, the pooling of resources. And most people think about cash, which is really what most people, so you're putting, you're, you're getting different people to give you cash, but it can be other things like credit or, you know, relationships or knowledge or anything that you can have some, 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 some value at, but it's somebody who gets there and puts, pulls these resources together in order to go buy something, right? So we're in the real estate business. So what, what my clients do, which is what you do is you'll go out there, you'll, you'll talk to five, 10, 15, 20, however many people it takes raise money from them, pool their capital and put your capital and pool it with them. And then you go buy a bigger piece of property or a property that you ordinarily either couldn't do on your own because of the finances or what most people do at this point, they don't want to do it themselves. You know, they don't want to tie up their capital and put the down payment there. So they go to several investors and they collect the monies to then go invest in a particular property. And by the way, it doesn't have to be real estate. You know, we've done you, you can be you could be Facebook, for example, which did a bunch of syndications back in the day because, you know, as a startup company, you need capital. So as you grow, you need more money. And so you don't have money. You can get loans from the bank and some. But at some point you would just you would raise the money from investors, bring that money into the company and, of course, give them a percentage of the company, which is what we do as syndicators. Um, so it doesn't have to be real estate. But in my world and I think in your world, too, you know, I, I think now 99 or 98 percent of my clients are real estate investors and they, they pretty much all invest in real estate. Awesome. And, you know, it can be in inside real estate. You, ca you could invest on multifamily, you know, storage. There is different uh, asset classes that you can invest in as well. Yeah, we, we do all kinds of. So multifamily probably right now is the most common just because it's it's the natural step. So most people get started in real estate and they invest in single family homes. That's how most people start. Sorry, they, they, they buy a house and they rent it out. Or they buy a condo and they rent it out and they get a second house or a third and a fourth. And they suddenly start realizing this is a lot of a lot of properties. So they want to step up to what we call a multifamily, which, you know, doesn't have to be huge. A multifamily technically is, you know, you can have a triplex or a fourplex or a 10plex or a 50plex or a 100. I mean, it can get bigger and bigger. But at some point, people realize that in order to really get to where they want to get, they need to really pick up the pace of and, and, and buying individual properties is not going to get them there. So eventually, they want to make that jump to, 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 to hire 
unit apartment buildings. And that's where syndication helps. But other people invest in, you know, mobile home parks is another big asset class right now because affordable housing is such a big deal. Uh, Self-storage, um, you know, single family homes, obviously. Uh, anything really real estate. There's so many different asset classes. Uh, I, I know I'm missing a couple off the top of my head, but there's, uh, uh, we do mostly, mostly multifamily, but uh, there, there are definitely a ton of other and actually now I'm actually doing a lot of oil and gas deals now. That's also with all the tax benefits that have kicked in. A lot of people are investing in, in oil producing activities, which is also interesting, which is kind of it's also a real estate play. Awesome. All right. So as a passive investor, you know, in syndication, you have the, the general partners, which are the GPs or limited partners, which are the passive investors, the LPs. As an LP limited partner, what do you need to look for when you are looking to invest uh, in a syndication? Yeah, and even before we talk about that, why don't we, let's just bring up a point I should have brought up before that, you know, as a passive investor, you know, you may not want to, or especially if you're just getting started, it might be a little bit daunting to go buy a whole house to yourself. Like, you know, you put 20% down payment, you got to get a loan, you got to qualify for a loan, or certainly if you've never done it before to go buy a 50 unit apartment building seems crazy. But if you've got 25,000 or 50,000 or some small, smaller amount of money, you can then invest or partner with a, syndica a syndicator who's now, as I said before, collecting everybody's money, pulling them together. And so your 25 goes in with everybody else's and now suddenly you've got 200,000 or 500,000 or a million or whatever, and you can go do the deal. So it's a great way for, for investors passively sort of get involved. And when they've got a little bit of money to invest, instead of putting it in the stock market, instead of putting it somewhere else, they can put it into one of these deals, one of these syndications. Um, one of the things that you, as a passive investor that you have to realize right off the bat uh, which is really where I specialize in. And I'm obviously, you not usually, I'm always representing the person putting this thing together. But as a passive investor, you have to realize that what the syndicator is selling you is not a piece of property, right? You're not buying the piece of property. You're buying a small percentage of the company of the, of a, we, we use limited liability companies and LLC. So your $25,000 or $50,000 investment may only own 2% of the company or three and a half percent or one and a half or what have you. And so you actually own LLC units, or think of it as shares. It's like if you're buying Apple or, or Facebook, you know, you're buying a share in the company. That's a security. Um, and that's why you hear securities lawyers involved or securities laws or the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's why they're involved in this process because a syndicator like yourself, as you know, you can't just go out there and start collecting a bunch of money from friends and family and or advertising, just, just, just collect money and put it into escrow and buy a property. There's a lot of rules and regulations that come along with that, which are actually meant to protect you as the passive investor. So the first thing you should recognize is, is number one, recognize that that's out there. So there's usually, depending on the way it's put together, but usually there's a lot of disclosures that the syndicator needs to provide you, almost like a prospectus. If you're going to go buy a mutual fund, nobody reads them, but you, you buy a mutual fund, there's actually a prospectus for that mutual fund that tells you all the, the philosophy of the fund, what kind of investments the fund's gonna make, all that kind of stuff. There's something similar when you do a syndication, the person putting it together will put together these documents, a prospectus, a business plan, uh, disclosure documents, and they'll package this all together and present to you. And as a passive investor, it's your job to do your own due diligence, obviously, on a bunch of different things, including the property, including the, the sponsors. But that, that, that those documentations that you're gonna be receiving is, is really the, the cornerstone of you doing your due diligence. So if, if anybody comes and says, hey, you know, invest 25,000 or 50,000 or whatever, without any documentation, that's probably a red flag for you. So you really should be expecting some level of documents from the person who's, who's looking for the money. 
uh, doesn't necessarily, depending on the deal, it may, it may vary depending on, on, on what type of investor you are. And, and we can talk about that in a second, but certain types of investors require more uh, disclosure documents than others. So, but that's probably the first thing you want to realize is that before you write a check for any amount, you want to make sure you're reviewing all those documentations, making sure you understand the structure, what they're buying, what they're doing with your money. And then ultimately you want to, you want to execute those documents and ask questions. I mean, that's part of the thing. If you don't understand something, or you're not clear on something, ask questions so that the idea is that you're now investing fully aware of all the risks, of all the rewards, of all the, anything that could go wrong, everything could go great. You, you factor all those things into your mind and then you can make an intelligent decision whether this is a good investment for you or not. That's kind of the idea behind all these disclosure documents. Yeah, and you brought a very important point because I had uh, the people that invested with me on my recent uh, syndication, they were like, so do I get an apartment? And I'm like, no, you are <laughs> not getting an apartment or have an apartment or, or three apartments. What you are getting is a piece of the pie of the LLC, of the entity that is buying the properties. And then you have, uh, you know, depending on the structure that each syndication has, you're going to get some equity and you're going to get some cash flow. Uh, so, but and you, you split know. that, and you split that with everyone. So, if you if you invest and you own, I'm going to make up a number. You own 2.3 percent of the LLC. Well, then you're going to get two point. Usually, you'll get 2.3 percent of whatever cash is available for distribution. And then when you sell, you'll get 2.3 percent of that of that sale amount. Again, it, it depends on the structure, but that's the idea. Uh, and the idea is you're you're sort of you're you're spreading out the risk because now you've been investing a little bit, and so you're not going to get the whole pie, obviously, but but it's a way to diversify your risk and, and, and get involved with other people. Right. And, and the best part is that you don't have to do anything like you were talking about, um, you know, if you're new and you are a little bit scared to pull the plug and, you know, buy it your, yourself or, or if you're a busy professional that don't that doesn't have the time to, to go do it yourself. Uh, syndication is a good vehicle for you to invest in real estate and have all the benefits of it, uh, grow your wealth, but you don't have to do the work yourself. Yeah, the only work you're really doing is on the front end and doing your due diligence on the property and the deal and the and sponsors. And, and even if that's a little bit, you know, above your, your, your comfort level, uh, there are certainly some uh, representatives and some experts that you can hire and to help you go through that process. And, and, and you know, obviously it's going to cost you a little bit of money there, but that they can review the documents, explain the deal for you. So that, again, the whole idea, and I really want to emphasize this, is that you go into this investment with all the information you need, all the information you require, um, and you, sh you should request that information and really demand that information from the sponsor so you can make an intelligence decision, not just blindly hand over a bunch of money because of whatever promises the, the person's making you, you know, when you're having a conversation or having a beer. <laughs> exactly. And so one question that I get very often is like, uh, when I tell them, you know, the preferred return is this much, is that for sure? And I always tell them like, no, you know, preferred re returns does not mean for sure. So can you uh, explain a little bit of that? Yeah, I've been meaning to do a video. I think it's the, either if it's not, well, I was going to do it as, a, as my next video, but now other things have come up that I want to do other videos on. But yeah, so there's a big misnomer sometimes that a preferred return equals a guaranteed return, or I'm going to get that money. And that's not true at all. If somebody says that to you, then you should probably run. Uh, what a preferred return is, is simply that you get preferential treatment, you're going to get paid ahead of the sponsor. So the way a preferred return typically works is you're going to get you meet, when I say you, I mean all of the investors, right? So you as a collective, you know, there might be 10 other people, 20, 30, five, it doesn't matter. Uh, it varies. But the idea is that a hundred percent of all the cash flow that's available to be distributed will first go to the investors 
until the investors reach that preferred return. So if it's an 8% preferred return, let's make the math easy. I invest $100,000. So a preferred return of 8% would mean I have to get paid $8,000 for me to get an 8% return. So all the preferred return is saying is like, Mauricio, you're going to be getting all of the money that we have that's available for distribution goes to you until you reach that $8,000 mark, until you reach that 8%. Then after that, it's going to get split however the documents and the structure is put together. But if any, in any given year, let's just say there's a particular year and, and the property just started and so there maybe isn't as much cash flow available, and let's just say there's only $4,000 available that year. Well, I'm going to get all of that money because, again, I get 100% of that money, but I'm only going to get $4,000, which is only a 4% return. So you can be short. Uh, it doesn't guarantee you that number. It just kind of says you're getting it all until you hit that number. Now, what happens typically is in most deals, and not all, that's another thing you want to pay attention to, but a lot of the times the preferred will, what we call it, will roll over the next year. So if you are promised an 8% and this first year you only get four, well, that means you owe me four for the first year, plus you're going to owe me the other eight for, for year two. And so you kind of keep going that way. And sometimes it then spills over to year three and year four. And sometimes you never actually catch up until you actually sell the property. And when you sell the property and there's a big profit, again, all, all of the money is going to go first to the investors until number one, they get their money back. And number two, they reach the whatever they're owed to get to that 8%. And then above that, they'll split. So it's not a guarantee. It's just a, it just means you're getting all the money until you hit that number. And if you don't hit it, you don't hit it. Right. And, and so you get paid first. That's the main point. Like the, the preferred return yeah, means that you get sponsor, paid first. Before the sponsor gets paid. So the sponsor, which it should be, you want to be aligned with the sponsor. You don't want to have a sponsor that that you know gets, I mean, there's different philosophies, but you typically don't want to have a sponsor that gets paid all the way up front. And then doesn't really care how the property performs because they've already gotten paid. You, you're, you want to have your interests aligned with the sponsors. And most sponsors, if not all, certainly my sponsors, I deal with you and you as well. You, you, you want to make sure you set up a structure where everybody's interest is aligned. And so the, the, the better the sponsor performs and the better the, the returns are for the investors, then typically this, the better the returns are for the sponsors. There's an incentive for the sponsor to, 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 to do the best for the investors. If you just come in and your sponsor, for example, just takes a big chunk of a big fee up front and then nothing on the back end, well, then there's no incentive for them to do the work during the, the three, four, five year period because they've already gotten paid. So, and I'm not saying they should all get paid on the back end either. It's, 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 a, it's a balance, but uh, you want to make sure that your sponsorship and your, and your investors interests are aligned and where there's an incentive for the sponsor to go do the best job they can, not only for themselves, but obviously for their, for their investors, which is really where their duty lies. They have a fiduciary duty to their investors and make sure that they make decisions not in the sponsor's best interest, they're supposed to make decisions, they must make decisions in the best interest of the investors. Absolutely. And that's very important because I tell my investors, the more money this property makes, the more money I'm going to make. So it's to my best interest to make it perform more because I will be making more money. Uh, but also let, let's touch on something that, that you, you mentioned, because I think a lot of people don't understand uh, that there is fees involved uh, because they, they, um, organizers, the, the GPs, the general partners, they are going to be spending a lot of time ahead of time uh, looking for the opportunity, underwriting the opportunity, negotiating it, uh, inspecting it, putting money down uh, before you know you even ask your investors to invest with you. So all that time, it could be a year, it could be six months that, it, that the general partners are investing on this before they can even you know uh, bring you in the deal. So there is uh, you know I know there is the acquisition fee, 
you know, and there is certain percentages that are common, uh, but that's something that a, an, a limited partner needs to look at, you know, like you mentioned, if they, there is too much money in the front, then you got to be worried a little bit about, but what other fees should the limited partners be expecting? Yeah, the most, there's all kinds of fees that get charged, but the most common ones is like, as you mentioned, there's, there's some kind of an upfront fee that gets charged, whether it's called an acquisition fee or a sponsor fee, but it's typically paid at close. And that can vary. It's usually about 2%, give or take two, two and a half, maybe three, depending on the deal, right? But let's just say it's two and 2%. Uh, and so if, if the deal is a $2 million deal, then 2% of that I think is $40,000. So at close, the sponsor will receive a $40,000 check. And the idea is that's gonna compensate them for all the work that they did from just looking for property. I mean, the amount of, the amount of most passive investors don't realize this, but when they actually finally get a property, I mean, the sponsor has spent sometimes sometimes years, but mostly months going through tens, if not hundreds of properties, looking at these deals, underwriting a bunch of properties, making offers, getting rejected. And then finally, after all this work, talking to lawyers, getting everything set up, and then going through the due diligence and going to visit the property and getting the financing set up. I mean, there's so much work. That's usually what that acquisition fee is used to, to sort of compensate them on the front end. Um, then of course, some I would say right now, I would say half of the people half to 60% of the people will charge what's called an asset management fee, which is an ongoing fee. And that's also about 2%, but that's usually based on rent. So whatever the gross rents are uh, of the property, you, you sometimes, well, oftentimes will have a property manager, which is sometimes a third party, they'll, they're gonna charge you whatever, six, eight, 10% of the rent. But as the manager, as the, as the sponsor, you'll also get about 2% an asset management fee. And that's, that's honestly, that's not a ton of money, right? I mean, if you look at the rents, it might be 20,000, 15,000, 8,000, whatever. It's not a ton of money. It's meant to really keep the lights on, right? So as the project's going on, you've got staff to pay, you've got reports to file, you're, you're, you're doing all this work, you've got to keep the, you have an office, you have a computer. I mean, you've got to keep the lights on and typically the asset management fee kind of covers you for that. Um, the main compensation obviously for, for a sponsor is, is the split with the investors, right? So, so even though the investors typically will put all of the money, you might, you, the sponsor will put some money in there, but they'll, they'll put their money alongside the investors, but let's just say a typical deal, let's just say get split 80-20, where 80% 80 of the money goes to the investors. The sponsor takes that 20%. That's what we call a carried interest. That's the 20% that really is what the investors, the, the sponsor is looking for. That's really where they really get get really paid for their efforts. And a lot, and yes, they get paid cash flow a little bit, but really it's on the back end when you add so much value to the property and you you've made a lot of created so much value for everyone, you're going to take 20%, basically a 20% profit cut. But other fees that you should be aware of that are not uncommon at all is probably the next most common fee is what we call a refinance fee. So anytime, not anytime, but usually when you're holding a property for five to 10 years, let's just say at some point in there after the, you've implemented your business plan and, and you're, you're done with the plan and, and everything's kind of going nicely, a lot of times a sponsor will go out and get a, a refinance. They'll refinance the property, pull some money out, return some money to the investors or whatever the game plan may be. That's a lot of work, right? So now again, you've got to start looking for the loan. You've got to get, you know, you're underwriting, you're usually lending, you're, you're actually guaranteeing, a lot of times you're guaranteeing the loan. It's a recourse loan. So if, if the property doesn't pay for it, you're on the hook for it. So it's not uncommon to see a refinance fee of anywhere from one to 2% of the loan amount that will be paid in the event of a, of a refinance. Cause again, there's a lot of work. Uh, some people will throw in a disposition fee as well. Meaning, you know, when we sell the property, you know, we'll, we'll charge 2% of the sales price as another fee. Um, I've also seen, I'm not a huge fan of that one. I like to see the disposition fee 
uh, after a certain hurdle. So maybe, you know, once the investors have made a 15% return, then you can get a 2%. Because again, you want to incentivize your sponsor to just hit it out of the ballpark. So if, this, if the investor is getting you 15% returns annualized or 20%, I mean, you should be happy to pay the sponsor anything they want because that's such a great return. And ultimately, you want to look at those numbers. And, and I, I would recommend not focusing. You want to be aware of the fees mm-hmm. and, and you want to make sure that they're reasonable. But at the end of the day, if they're performing for you and you're getting a great return, you know, I would not get caught up in the fees. I mean, to lose out on an opportunity because the, a sponsor is charging a 5% acquisition fee instead of a two, but the pro forma shows that, you know, the idea is everybody is going to get 20% returns and you're going to give that up just because you're not happy with the fee. It's more of a principal thing. At the end of the day, you want to see what, what, what is the bottom line. If, if this plan is executed to perfection and, and you can remodel and you can get the rents up and you can get the occupancy up and this is how much rent we're going to have and this is what the value is and you do the math, and at the end, you're happy with that return. Part of me says, well, what do you care what the sponsor makes as long as you're making something that you're that you're happy with? Absolutely. And, and that's that's the reason I wanted to discuss this, uh, because I think I want people to be aware of this, but not be, you know, taken back and not do it because of that. Because at the end of the day, the the returns that a syndicator is presenting to you, they are besides all the fees that they will be charging. So the return is not going to be affected by these fees. So all this is included, the, the fees from the lawyers. And that's the main thing. Like if they are not using a lawyer, then you got to be worried about, you want them right. to use right. a lawyer that is going to protect you as well, because all of these fees, they are going to be displayed on the on the documents. And that's what you need to review, uh, you know, when you get presented an opportunity. Yeah, and don't forget, and this is one of the big, you know, that's no secret if you've seen any of my, my videos, I'm not a big fan of, of the Wall Street world and, and mutual funds, but one of the things most people, or 401ks, one of the things most people don't realize is, is that with mutual funds, for example, there's a lot of hidden fees. Like you really, you end up with whatever return, let's say you, you have in a mutual fund and you, you get paid a, a 5% annualized return that year, you just see the 5%. You, didn't, you don't really realize that it really was eight. And, and with all the fees, and some of them aren't even disclosed. Some of them are disclosed in the business plan and the, in the prospectus, but a lot of them are kind of hidden fees based on trading. And so th- those are at least, at least, at least these fees are, are, they have to be disclosed. That's one of the, the major disclosures that will be in that documentation is all the payment or compensation that's going to the sponsor. But just realize even when you're buying mutual funds or other stuff, there's always fees and hidden fees that you don't know about. Here, at least you know they're there. And if, if the returns, and the business plan, more importantly, is something that you're comfortable with, and obviously with the sponsor being comfortable with the sponsor, then I would try and be aware of the fees, make sure they're not completely out of whack, make sure that the fees are aligned, again, like we said before, with this, with your interest. If all the fees are being paid up front, and it's like, oh, I'm going to take a 10% acquisition fee and then a 1% on the back end, then that then the interests aren't aligned. But uh, don't get too caught up in the fees, I, w- I would say. Absolutely. Um, that, that is very important. So let's talk about the, um, the PPM, which are the documents that the investors are going to be reviewing, because I think um, by law, we have to disclose the worst case scenarios on those documents. So, uh, you know, you're going to be presented with the worst case scenario that can happen for you to just be aware of the risk. But that doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, so a PPM is a private placement memorandum. And the best analogy I've got is, is the medical consent form. So when you go into surgery, um, and even if you go to oral, I've had so many, I've, I always tell the story of having such bad teeth that I've had oral surgery, I think four times now. 
And so I'll go in for oral surgery and, uh, you know, they put you under for like three minutes or something just to get the wisdom teeth pulled or whatever. And they'll hand you that medical consent form. It's that yellow sheet. If you've had surgery before you or any procedure, you've seen it before. And it tells you all the ways your procedure can go wrong. Right. And in my case for oral surgery, you know, you could have some infection after the fat. There could be some bleeding. There could some be disorientation. You could die from having your wisdom teeth. I mean, all of the worst case scenarios. And then you sign that medical consent form. The doctor signs it. Everybody agrees. We understand what the risks of the procedure are, and we're going to move forward. That's what a PPM is. It's, it's a document that tells you all the ways your deal could go wrong. Every single, trust me, I think of every possible way your deal can go wrong. You know, even COVID, you know, it wasn't specifically, obviously, we didn't know what COVID-19 was, but, you know, global pandemics and that kind of stuff would typically be, you know, covered in there where things could go wrong. Here's our game plan. Who knows what could happen? I mean, you're in you're in my, in, in Florida, you know, if you're in a place where there's hurricanes and suddenly there's a hurricane comes in and knocks down your building or there's a fire I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong that isn't necessarily your fault. And you just need to be aware of that because if something like that does happen, it's obviously going to impact the, your returns. It's going to impact, you know, the tenants being able to pay their rent or how much money you're going to rent. So the PPM is just a document that just kind of shows you all the ways, it really is two things. One, all the ways your deal can go south all the risks, all the brand, and then whatever disclosures, specific disclosures. If, if something's, you know, well, let me give you an example. I mean, if, if the sponsor has been convicted of securities fraud in the past, you know, whatever, then that's obviously something they're probably going to be barred from doing it, but you would have to disclose that kind of information if they've been bankrupt. So there's also these disclosures about the team that, that they're putting together and of course the deal. Uh, and then, you know, the structure itself, sometimes people put together riskier, I don't want to say risky, but riskier structures like for example my favorite riskier structure that i see that i that i've seen lately is just closing deals with a bridge loan i mean that's not necessarily a bad thing but that's got a lot more risk because it's a short-term loan and at the end of the loan you've got to refinance or you've got to get a permanent loan and what if we can't get a permanent loan so there's some risks involved so that's the kind of stuff that would be disclosed in a ppm um, as well as the fees that we just talked about i mean everything you need to know uh, isn't it now not every single deal requires a ppm so if you don't have a PPM, it doesn't mean they're doing something illegal. Um, if everybody involved is, is what we call an accredited investor, which right now an accredited investor is basically anybody who is a, has a million dollars of net worth, excluding their primary residence, or has earned $200,000 the last two years, so 2018, 2019, with a reasonable expectation of earning $200,000 or more this year. If they're all accredited investors, then a PPM isn't actually not legally required. It's still highly recommended, but if, if, if usually people put deals together with three or four of the accredited investors, you may not see a PPM. But if you're personally a non-accredited investor, meaning you don't have a million bucks or you don't earn 200,000, then you should expect to see a full set of disclosure documents. They're usually in the 100 to 150 page range, um, which it usually has that PPM private place memorandum, you will see an operating agreement because you are going to be a member of a, an LLC. So the, it's, it's, uh, the operating agreement is the document that governs the rules regarding the LLC, voting rights. Uh, you know, can you fire the manager? When can you fire the manager? You know, do you have any say? Uh, what are the splits? Is there a preferred? All that stuff is in the operating agreement. There's a subscription agreement usually, which a subscription is, is basically the document that, that you actually say, look, I'm, I want to invest 50,000, 100,000, 20,000, whatever the number is. Um, and then there's usually a questionnaire, an investor questionnaire, where we have all your information. And then more importantly for us, understand whether you're accredited or non-accredited. So we know what kind of disclosure documents we need to give you. And then there's a, your business plan is usually part of that document. Awesome. And so let me ask you about the entities, because um, that's one of the questions that I got. Should I invest personally or should I invest with an entity? 
as a limited partner? Yeah, so you, so that's an asset protection question. So it, the, the answer is always it depends. Um, in general, from an asset protection standpoint, I, I feel like everyone should have some kind of a, a protective entity that separates them from whatever they're owning. Uh, we call those holding companies. So typically, I highly recommend people, instead of owning a particular asset directly in their personal name, to have a hold some LLC first, that they own an LLC, and then that LLC would then own whatever the asset is. Um, and, and those LLCs get created in, in asset protection friendly states, which is why you hear Nevada or Delaware, Wyoming is actually one of my favorite, basically one of those three. Um, but if you don't have one of those and, um, and the LLC is already in one of those really good states, then it's not the end of the world if you invest in your personal name. So for, I'll give you a good example. If you're buying, if you're investing in a, in a, in a deal that's located in the state of Texas, for example, they, they will most likely, they really, they should be creating a Texas LLC to own the property. And then you would become a, a small equity member of that Texas LLC. Well, Texas has pretty darn good asset protection law. So even if you own that Texas LLC in your personal name, the odds are it's going to be pretty well protected through a, what's something called a charging order, which we're, we're not going to get into now. Contrast that with you buy a, a deal that's in, let's say, California or Georgia. Uh, those are probably the worst asset protection state. So if you if you buy something here in California, which not too many people do, but uh, if you buy a property in California, you create a California LLC. Now you become a member of a California LLC and you put that in your personal name. That's a much higher risk of getting taken away from you than the deal in Texas. So in that scenario, I would be recommending, well, first go out and create something in Nevada or Delaware or Wyoming first, and then have that LLC be the limited partner in the California LLC or Georgia LLC or or, or even probably Florida. Florida is not the greatest, not terrible, but it's not the greatest. Awesome. All right. Uh, and, and also because the property is owned by an LLC, so you kind of have already a little bit of a protection, right? Yes. But you know, yes. you want extra protection in a in a state where it's more litigious, yeah. then you want to create an extra one. Yeah, because they can, they can take that away from you. So let's just say I put in $50,000 and let's just I say I own 5% of the LLC and I get into a lawsuit and there's a judgment against me and they want to take my assets away. Well, I don't own the property, but I own 5% of this company. Again, just think of it as a share is like you own shares in Apple. They mm -hmm. can have a judge go to you to, to, to go to the, to the judge and say, judge, I want, I want those 5% of those shares. I mean, those shares are generating cash flow. You know, at some point they're going to really be worth a lot. I want those shares. And that's where you want to be in states where the judge will say, no, 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 no. I, I can't give you the shares. Uh, I'll give you some other rights, but I'm not going to give you the shares. If you're in California, Georgia, or some of those states, the likelihood of them taking those shares away from you is much higher. Awesome. All right. So um, we talked about the, the legal documents, um, the PPM and the, the OM. The OM is the offering memorandum, right? That's more or less the marketing part of the, of the opportunity. Yeah, the OM, you know, people call it different things. Offering memorandum, I think is maybe a, more, a pretty popular vernacular. I like to call it the business plan or the executive summary or something like that. Um, it's more than, I think a lot of times the OM is simply what the broker gives you. So it's really just talks about the property. Uh, and to me, the property piece is just one subsection of the overall business plan. So obviously your business plan is going to talk about the property. Here's what we're buying. Here's where it is. Here's what the occupancy is. Here's what the rents are. Here's whatever. But really the business plan, you step even further back and you're, you're telling investors, look, I'm looking to raise this much money 
And here's what I'm going to do with that money. We're going to acquire the property. We're going to spend a bunch of money here renovating the property or building another building or whatever it is you're going to do. And then we're going to bring the, the rents up to market because there's a good chance because of this, the, the, the status of the property, dilapidated status, the rents are lower. So maybe you could get $500 a month in rent, but this particular property is only getting $350 in rent because it's so dilapidated. So when you put a bunch of money into it and it make it nice, the same as the other property, well, now you can raise the rents to the 500. Maybe the occupancy is 70% and you're going to get it to 90 because that's what everybody else is at 90. So all that information is what really is part of the business plan. Also information about you and the sponsor and your level of expertise and your, and your, and your, and your, um, your track record. Uh, those are all things that go into the business plan. What are you going to do with my money once I give it to you? That's what's in the business plan. The PPM is all the ways your deal could go wrong uh, and, a, and a lot more detailed from the business plan. The business plan may reference the structure, but really the details are in the PPM. And of course, the operating agreement has to do more with how everything works and if there's a dispute. Like, what if I want to? What if I want to leave? The, what if I need my money back? What if I I don't like the way the manager is doing something? What if I do this? What if what if this? What if what if what if what if? That's when you turn to the operating agreement to find the answers. Awesome. All right. So that operating agreement needs to detail all those questions that you mentioned, because these are all the worst case scenarios. What if I die? What if I need to get my money out? And, and you know, that's one question that I got. And I'm assuming that this will be um, kind of depending on the opportunity. But, you know, we know that the syndication, you know, a limited partner should expect to not be Able, that you need to use money that you don't need immediately. This is a money that you have extra and that you just want to invest it to grow it, but you don't need it for your day-to-day living and you have your savings for emergencies and this is some extra money that you want to invest. Uh, but in a case of an emergency, can you get your money out of a syndication? You, you've got to look at the documents. It, it depends. And so, but the first thing you mentioned is a really important point. The, the big difference between buying stocks in the stock market and buying stocks or, or you know companies in a private market is there is no there's no public market. So when you if you have Apple stock and you're like oh, I want to sell it tomorrow, you can sell it immediately. You just go into the market, the, the stock exchange, and you and you exchange it, and somebody's going to buy it. That doesn't exist in our world. There is no currently there's no private exchange where you're like hey I've got a three percent LLC interest here. I'd like to sell it. Who wants to buy it? Uh, plus you actually get what we call restricted security. So you actually can't freely trade these things anyway. Uh, you're, you're at least locked in for a year. Uh, after a year, you've got some flexibility to now sell it to the next person. Because again, you're selling securities and you may have to register them, all that stuff. Um, so uh, most real estate deals are five to seven years. And if you need, if you need that money before five to seven years, and this is not, not the investment for you, this, it doesn't match your invest, what we call the personal investment philosophy. If this is money you need, this is not your investment. Uh, you should put it in a CD or put it in the stock market or, or whatever you want to do that you can have what we call liquidity, get in and out. Uh, this one you've got to expect you're going to be in there five to seven, some of them even longer than 10. Uh, typically, after a year, most operating agreements, most deals allow you to go find on your own somebody to buy your share. So if you have an, a medical emergency or, or just something changed, you know, COVID, you're unemployed and something, man, I really could use that $100,000. Most deals will allow you to go find somebody on your own. And if you can find somebody who wants to buy your shares for a hundred thousand or 70,000 or 200,000 or whatever you can negotiate, you can then sell those to that person. Now, typically the sponsor reserves a right. It's a right of first refusal because they want to kind of control who's in and out. So if, if the investor finds somebody to go buy there, let's say I've got, I've got $50,000 in my brother wants to come in. He, he likes, he's got money. I need the money. I'm going to sell it to my brother. 
the sponsor would have the right to match that offer that the brother made to keep everything in house. Uh, now, in reality, a lot of sponsors do accommodate people if, if somebody really has some really exigent circumstances. I mean, this is a relationship business, so they sponsors generally want to take care of their investors. They, they're looking for a long-term relationship. They want to come back and have them to come back. So they'll, they'll work with them. Maybe they'll help you find somebody else. Uh, and in, in certain circumstances, maybe they'll decide to, to buy you out themselves, but they're certainly not obligated uh, because they, they can be. Because if you can imagine if there's a provision in there that, that it basically obligates the sponsor to buy you out in one or two years, well, what if everybody decides they want their money back? Or what if suddenly there's a huge recession and things aren't looking great and the property value is plummeting and now everybody wants to get out? So that obviously isn't, is not the purpose. Um, so if you invest in a syndication, you really should go in there with the mindset that this is a five to seven year deal. And uh, I'm going to hopefully in five to seven years, get my money back with, with friends and, and then go do the next deal. But um, if it's something you're going to need before then, you shouldn't be investing in it. Awesome. And then um, talking a little bit about now, you were mentioning securities law uh, for a limited invest, a limited partner. Uh, how does these laws affect them or do they? Maybe this is uh, it affects more the, the general partners than the limited partners. It affects them because it gives them the it gives them certain rights, right? I mean, the, the securities laws are there to protect the passive investor. Um, that's what they're there for. So the main protection there is the, is the disclosure level, right? Again, they can't just go take your money. They have to give you. They have to follow the, these procedures. And if they do not follow those procedures, then your remedy is what we call rescission, which means if you end up losing, let's say I put in fifty thousand dollars and the, the the sponsor loses that money, let's say they put it in a building, the property whatever, it just goes into foreclosure and you lose the property and I lose all my money. If you haven't complied with all the securities laws, then I can make a complaint against you and the SEC will come in and, and my remedy is rescission. You've got to give me my money back plus interest, even though it wasn't your fault. I mean, you know, like for example, 2008 was a great example. A lot of people lost money. It wasn't necessarily any, anybody's fault. It's just the whole credit market. You know, if you were planning on refinancing and you couldn't get a loan, that was a problem. So even if it's not your fault, you'll be on the hook for it. So, so it is a level of protection. And, um, and if, if, if you ever in a situation where you think things aren't going well, I think the biggest leverage point that a passive investor can have is just to pick up the phone and call the regulators because it's a heavily regulated industry. And to the extent you feel like, you know, the sponsor hasn't been doing following securities laws and then, then there's definitely some redress with that. And again, now, realistically, if the deal goes south and, you know, all the money's lost, you know, where's the money going to come from? So you may have a right to get that money back, but if the sponsor files for bankruptcy and you, you know, there's no money, you, you may not have it, but, but it does protect you. That's what the whole point of the securities laws are, are there it is to protect you. Yeah. But, you know, I, I want to also mention that uh, being a real estate investment that you always have the property that, you know, it, it will be sold eventually. And there's going to be some money versus stock where the, the value could go down and you lose everything. And there's really nothing tangible. Uh, yeah, and, you, and, and with the stock, I was just thinking as soon as I said that, and it, and it has to do with the level of disclosure. Again, with the, with the stock, it's publicly traded. There's actually a whole registration process that has to go through. So the SEC actually reviews all that stuff. But yeah, if I bought Apple stock and, and tomorrow Apple goes bankrupt, uh, I'm, I can't go sue. You know, I'm not going to be suing Apple because I lost you know $100,000 or $200,000. I might sue my brokerage firm, which is what I used to do back in the day, defend the brokerage <laughs> firms for selling me the security. Uh, but yes, yeah, so you actually have a tangible asset. So as long as there, if there's some equity in there, that's why most of the time people, it's I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but most of the time when people lose money, it's it's usually a piece of it, right? Like the, the, the deal didn't go as much as well as we went, as we thought, 
we ended up selling it for less than it was worth, but we still had a little bit of, we paid off the loan and whatever. And there's a little bit of equity left and we kind of divvied up whatever was left over. But, um, but yeah, that's what the securities laws are there for is to give you those, all those, those protections in terms of disclosures so that they, the sponsor can't just go do whatever they want and, and promise you the moon and mislead you. They're supposed to disclose all the information so you can make intelligent decisions as to whether this is a good investment for you or not. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, the, the offering memorandum or the business plan will show you what the uh, team is trying to approach, trying to uh, do with the property. So the best case scenario, and then you're going to have the PPM, the private placement memorandum that will uh, tell you what can go wrong uh, with the deal. So you can, you can make um, an educated decision. Um, so that's why it's so important that, uh, to review these documents because they are going to give you the best case scenario and, and the worst case scenario. <laughs> Yeah, try to um, yep. All right. So any final thoughts for uh, limited partners before we go to the next segment? No, I think I just think, you know, my biggest recommendation for limited partners is always the due diligence, right? Uh, you're not going to have any involvement, by the way, once the deal goes through, you're not going to have any voting rights or any say of how the property goes. And, and so your say is at the beginning is whether, whether to invest or not. And I believe that, you know, doing your due diligence on the sponsor is probably the most important thing. You know, one thing is to put together a nice little business plan and OM and, and pretty pictures and all the promises, but can the sponsor, you know, actually execute on that business plan? So that's that's really what the, the limited, that's the job of the limited partner is to, is to do their due diligence on the sponsor, on the project uh, and on the deal structure. Absolutely. Expert tips. All right, so now we're going to do the three expert tips segment, and Mauricio is going to uh, talk about three personal development tips. Well, three personal development tips. Um, you know, let, let me do a couple that I know that, I, that it really worked well for me. Number one is, I, I was going to say, actually, the tip is going to say to get up early. Uh, I get up at, a, at an obscenely uh, crazy hour. But it really works the other way around. Some people are night owls. So it doesn't necessarily mean early. So I'm an early person now. I get up really early. And I just, for me, it's been a huge game changer because I get so much done before most people get into the office. By the time most people get into the office, I've already had like a full day's work, right? So that that's really, but but the same could work on the other end. Um, and the other end is, you know, once everybody's done with work, um, I think it was Dennis Waitley, one of the big uh, personal development says, you know, most of their job, most of the stuff they get done is what, in, in what they call prime time which is when everybody else is watching television from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. That's when they were writing the books. That's when they were putting their business plans together. So whether it's really early in the morning or really late at night, just set aside that time to get stuff done that's really on your on your schedule. Uh, because once the day starts, you know, you're getting pulled in so many different directions. Uh, so that's been a big thing for me. And then the other thing that's been a really big game changer for me is just focus. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing I've learned in terms of, you know, one of the keys, I guess, to success is just being really focused and understanding that, number one, not everything is worth the same. You've got a thousand things to do on your on your um, on your to do list, but they're not equal, right? Some things are more important than others. And in fact, there's one of my favorite things, and maybe this is kind of morphed into number three. But there's something called the the eighty twenty rule, which is the Pareto principle. And if you haven't heard of the eighty twenty rule or the Pareto principle, the Pareto is an Italian guy who came up with this thing. Uh, I highly recommend you look it up. But essentially, Pareto principle basically says that. 20% uh, of your efforts, 20% of your things that you put into it result in 80% of the results, right? So not everything is equal. You might have a hundred things on your to-do list, 
20% of those things will probably generate 80% of the results. So the key is to focus on those 20% and put all your energy in that 20% because 20% will result in 80. If you focus on the 80%, it's only going to generate 20%. That's not a good use of your time. Delegate that other 80%, but focus on that 20% that that'll do the most. And that's true whether it's income, 20% of your clients probably generate 80% of your income, whether it's, you know, you name it, it always comes out to this, uh, you know, this, to this Pareto principle. So I, I would highly recommend you guys, if you haven't heard of that 80-20 rule to, to look it up, because that's made a big difference in organizing my life and, and focusing on what's actually important as opposed to just being busy. Absolutely. And, I, and then I, I'll do one more tip, which I think is a bonus tip. <laughs> Jim Rohn, if you have not heard of Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N, Jim Rohn is probably the father of personal, I highly recommend you look him up and, and get his uh, videos, TVs. He passed away, unfortunately, about 10 years ago, but uh, he's really changed my life a lot and has changed the lives of a lot of people. So if you haven't heard of Jim, I highly recommend you uh, look him up. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mauricio, for joining me today and, and you know explaining syndication in an easy way for people to understand and to learn about it, educate themselves. Um, this is a, a, an amazing way to start investing if you've never done it before or if you want to invest passively. Uh, you know, and so you know it is my mission to educate my my uh, you know investors and so that they can do their own due diligence and you know be able to invest um, comfortably, right? Because you know if you don't know something, then you are not going to feel comfortable doing it, and that's that's not the goal. So, where can people find you? You know, I, I do a lot of stuff on YouTube. So if you want to go to my YouTube channel, Mauricio Raul, and I've got a ton of educational videos there. I really do try to add value. Or my website's just premierlawgroup.net, premierlawgroup.net. Uh, I would go to the YouTube channel, but I appreciate a subscribe and trying to build that uh, thing. But uh, I try and add as much value as I can absolutely i'll be the first one to do that and if you are enjoying this podcast please uh, also go to uh, my youtube channel Annette Lee, or go to the podcast and do a like share and and share with your friends if you got value out of this thank you everybody this was real estate deal closers with annette talee brought to you by talee investments we hope that you enjoyed this episode our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more did you like this episode subscribe like and share